Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. This is the second of three episodes focused on projects nominated by the Directors Guild of America, or DGA, for Outstanding Directorial Achievement. If you're joining us for the first time, it might help to go back an episode and start season four from episode one, although it won't spoil anything to listen to them out of order. And while we're not going to intentionally spoil any of the films or television shows we discuss, sometimes things slip out. So please consider this a spoiler warning. Today's panel is a holdover from last episode, so intros will be brief. Katie Carroll, member of the DGA. Happy to be back. Bill Hardy, member of the DGA. Hey, Skid. And Sean O'Banion, not a member of the DGA, <laughs> but a member of the Producers Guild of America. Thanks for having me back, Skid. So before we move on to the next category, I want to briefly revisit the theatrical feature film list and ask, which movies do you think should have been nominated that weren't on the list? Well, in my mind, it's Little Women. I think Greta Gerwig did a fantastic job with that movie. It's so brilliantly done. It has time jumps the way Irishman does, but the moment the first time jump happens, you're like, what's going on? And then you figure it out and then you're like, oh, okay, now I know where I am. Now I, you, you're, they're playing with time, but you always know where you are. It's a story that always has heart. And I think, I mean, I'm not going to go deep down the female side of it, but the other reason I think it's overlooked is because it's what, the 20th iteration of this. So a lot of the old timey people in the DJ are like, oh yeah, I've seen this movie. Well, no, you saw it 50 years ago. This is a different version. It, it, it's an old white man's version of not liking war movies. It, my version of not liking war movies. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, I've seen this. I've seen it. The way I say I've seen war movies. No. War, all war movies are a little bit different, but there are things that I don't tend to like about a lot of war movies. So I think they probably, I'm guessing, looked at it like, oh yeah, I've seen this. Have you I, though? Let's take a look at this. And we could do a whole episode probably on where the uh, nominations come from and how people vote on that. <laughs> um, and maybe it is worth noting that with the DGA, uh, Directors Guild members are able to nominate five films out of any film that meets the release category. And there's a whole list. I think most people probably do it online. I remember one was on paper as well, but you just choose the movies and then it's ranked voting. And so however those ranks add up, that determines what the five films are. It'd be interesting, obviously they don't release this, to see where Little Women fell in that, if at all. Honestly, it wasn't one of my favorite films of the year. Um, I wasn't super familiar with Little Women going in. I've read a lot about how Greta Gerwig changed things to make it accessible in ways that obviously have appealed to folks. And I think it's strong. And Greta Gerwig, who I think did such a fantastic job with Lady Bird, I was sold. But for me, the time jumps, and maybe it's my bias, it didn't really work for me, the kind of going back and forth. I thought some of the acting was peculiar to use the same actors in both spaces in ways that I think maybe I would have cast littler women for when they're littler. <laughs> I mean, it might have been my approach on that, but... How about you guys? Films you think are missed? Things that uh, came out this year that, that should be here but aren't? I had, of my five uh, nominations, I didn't have Irishman or Parasite, but I did have Ford versus Ferrari and Pain and Glory, the Pedro Maldivar, which I've always loved his movies. And this is, it's, you know, I, we, I, who said during the Golden Globes, as long as you can get over the one-inch titles? Uh, it was Bon Joon Ho. Yeah, that's who I thought it was. I see what the way I tricked you into saying his name. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but 
it's pain and glory was amazing i've always loved his movies and the color scheme the way i just i want to live in a world i want to live in a world where reds and blues look like they do in Amaldivar movies and everybody's fantastic in that cast too you got it's more little kid uh stuff great performance by the little boy playing him at a young age and I always love movie inside movie stuff. You know, it's uh, autobiographical. So, you know, it's like all that jazz, maybe this. It's, it's, a, it's a really nice film. I, I might have subbed in uh, Little Women instead of The Irishman, honestly, as well. I mean, I've been a fan of Greta on the acting side as well. I like Frances Ha. I like Lady Bird. I thought what she was able to do with this story, which I think I... I saw a version with like Winona Ryder. I don't know if I ever saw the, the even earlier versions, but I thought what she was able to do both in the, in the writing of it and, and in the direction made it really almost contemporary and, and accessible in a way that I don't think the other version I saw ever, ever did. And I, I thought it was weird that she was sort of passed over. Yeah. For myself, I was actually not good at predicting the movies this year. I had Parasite in 1970 as my votes, but my other three went for Marriage Story, which we haven't talked about at all, but I think is a really well-balanced film, and I think that's a credit on that. Uh, Hidden Life, I actually think, if you guys haven't seen it yet, that one's not as much, but Terrence Malick, I have a pretty uh, low bar for Terrence Malick. I sense Thin Red Line, I feel like he's been all over the place, but... This one, he managed to bring what he does in a way that the story really comes together. So I really like that. That's not getting a lot of attention. And I also like Ford v. Ferrari. I think the complications there, particularly from, a, from an AD director's team perspective. And yeah, we did, I did some podcasts on that as well. You know, folks, if you want me to vote for your movies, come do a podcast. Apparently that will, uh, that will sell me on it. But uh, Ford v. Ferrari. I, 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 will, uh, I will give you a little women, though, if you'll drop Jojo Rabbit, though, okay? You want to make that trade? Like, it's... Uh, uh, <laughs> It's, uh, it is, and it's not what we're going to talk about today, but I do think it's an interesting year where uh, women are really underrepresented in the award season across the board, I think. And that's, mm -hmm. uh, and you can argue that whether these are the best movies or not, but you got to look at the system that, that we're not getting more competitive movies from women. It's not just about what women are directing. It's about the opportunities and, and how these deals get made, so. That's another podcast for another time. <laughs> another podcast for another time. I, but if any, but if somebody from a studio is listening, you know, I, I have a great problem listening to things, watching things that I'm told to watch, and that's essentially what happens with screeners. But uh, there's there, there's got to be somebody in the middle between the female directors and us voting for them that can actually get us these movies sooner and more with more attention, because you know. Like, I didn't even know another, another podcast, but I didn't even know about Queen and Slim being a first-time director. You know, that's like, and, and it, 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 we miss something. I see the way SAG gets their movies with pictures on it. And I know it sounds stupid to say that, but they're, they're being really forced to, they're like, we want you to feel this way about this movie. And then we get nothing. We get it plain so we can make our own decision is the way I think about it. But you know, I still want more movies. I, I don't, I want a more wide variety. I can't see everything. I do need to be told what to consider. So the studios need to, uh, they wanted, they should have better campaigns for these uh, female directors too. You know, it's an interesting take. And again, we're going to, we're going to talk about um, 
first time feature films in just a moment where women are better represented this year. And maybe there's, there's hope for the future in that. But um, it's an interesting point, though, that for years and years, the Directors Guild didn't send screeners at all that you had to go to the theater. Now they organized a lot of free screenings. Uh, and I remember the AMC in uh, LA, there was a list at the, at the counter that if a DGA member came and showed their card, they could see any of, you know, it'd be five to 10 movies, particularly during award season that you could just go see for free, but there were no screeners. They expected you to watch it in the theater to experience it. But particularly with older voters, I think people weren't going anymore and people, some of these movies aren't getting seen at all. And so, now we keep well, track what they've of- done for the last three or four years at the really good theaters where specifically they want directors to go to the nicer theaters like the Arclight or the Landmark, you can't use your DGA card Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays because they're losing a paying ticket. And that paying ticket is like, that's a good chunk of change for them. So, well, if I'm working, I am not going to the movies Monday through Thursday. That's not happening. I can maybe watch a screener at home one night. But I'm not taking an extra 20 minutes, 30 minutes to drive to the theater, spend money on parking, go to the theater, come back. I mean, that's for a short two-hour movie, that's minimum three hours that I'm gone, maybe more, because you can't pick your ticket ahead of time, so you got to book the ticket. So, yeah, the the moment it became harder to get to the theater, that's about the time that they started to finally allow us, you know, send out screeners. Like, oh, yeah, your TVs and your sound systems are actually pretty good now, so let's look (laughs) at it really. Well, thank goodness that we're able to see more of these things. Because otherwise, I think a lot of these uh, first-time directors, uh, we might not have had as many opportunities to see at all. Do you guys do, I mean, once you get to a certain point in the season, it's very clear what the sort of contenders are. So, you know, and a lot of times I'll get a, I'll get a screener late, you know, in December or something, and I'll be like, well, nobody's even talking about this now. You know, so it's not even like I could write it in for PGA. But and then I'm like, uh, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. And, and then often I don't. Unfortunately, I have enough free time uh, <laughs> that I can uh, put some time into it. So I try to take it pretty seriously myself. But, you know, but at the same time, I recognize that if there's not a campaign behind a movie, you know, like a couple of years ago, the, the first screener I always get is always mentally influential. And I got Mother. Darren Aronofsky. And I love that movie. I thought it's amazing. I tell all my friends they should go see it. I think it's got like a 13 on Rotten Tomatoes. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, I almost felt silly when I realized that nobody else liked it as much as I did. And it wasn't one of their five. So, you know, it's. Yeah, it, a few it, years ago, uh, a most violent year, the J.C. Shander film uh, with <laughs> Oscar Isaac in it. That was like the first one that I and I watched it. I was blown away. I was like, this is an amazing movie. And then it just was nowhere in the conversation. And I was sort of in shock about it. I mean, I'm still in shock about it. I, I think it's a great film. But yeah, occasionally that'll happen where I'm just like, I'll watch something, I'll get the DVD and be like, I don't even know what this is, but I'll pop it in and, you know, it'll be something moving. I think I didn't see the film because I never got a screener, but there's a movie called Waves this year that I saw the trailer for. And I was like, I'm going to like that movie. And A24 just didn't send it to me. And it, it just kind of dropped out of the comp. People were talking about was Trey, Trey Edward Schultz directed it, did this movie called uh, Cresha that got a lot of people talking. And uh, it has uh, Sterling K. Brown from This Is Us in it. And just, I mean, if you watch the trailer, you're like, that is an amazingly directed movie. Just from the colors and that takes place in Florida. And you're like, this is going to be a thing. And it just didn't have the weight behind it, I guess. Mm. 
Well, let's turn our attention to the first time feature film category, where there are a lot of smaller films uh, represented this year. As before, I'll just read through the nominees. And uh, some of these names I'm not familiar with, so apologies in advance if I mispronounce them. But um, Maddie Diop, uh, a woman nominated for Atlantics. Uh, Alma Harrell, another woman getting credit here, nominated for Honey Boy. Melina Matsukas, nominated for Queen and Slim. Bill, that's the movie you mentioned earlier. And then uh, two gentlemen who co-directed, I'm presuming, Tyler Nilsson and Michael Swartz. They did The Peanut Butter Falcon. And then finally, Joe Talbot is nominated for The Last Black Man in San Francisco. First, let's start with The Atlantics. I watched that film. It's out on Netflix. Uh, who else has had a chance to see it? I did. So, I have Bill. not. Okay. <laughs> so, Sean and Katie, you're out of this one. This is going to go a lot faster, I think. Uh, <laughs> Atlantics, Bill, what did you think? Uh, never would have watched it if it wasn't uh, nominated. When I read the description when it came out, it, was, it seemed a very straightforward love story to me, and uh, based on the description, I should say. But as soon as I started watching it, I, I, got, I was more interested. I'm like, it's a, it, I, I don't know anything about this world uh, in North Africa, and it's a migrant story in the sense they're trying to get to Spain. It's about some, a bunch of girlfriends and boyfriends, and the boyfriends are going to Spain in a boat. And don't tell the girlfriends. That's your setup, I guess. And from there on, the second hour is totally different from the first hour. Um, I felt like there are still elements of the overarching love story for sure. But... Uh, yeah, you know, I saw the film as well. So for folks who are not familiar, it's set in, uh, I think, Dakar is the capital of Senegal. And this is where it takes place. And it is dealing with issues of poverty, um, some themes we've seen in like Parasite as well, that, and then the story itself. Overall, it's not one of my favorite movies of the year. I also don't know that I would have, I mean, it's getting a lot of press and push, um, not just from Netflix on my app, like telling me I need to watch it, but uh, other places as well. And I think they do a lot of interesting stuff. I think um, in watching it, the challenges of working in the poor parts of the city and sort of going through and there are very complicated scenes. There's a lot of driving scenes, surprising amount for, I think what looks like an extremely difficult area to lock up and actually control all the elements. I mean, to some degree, maybe yeah, they're I'd, not. I'd, on this I'd like, like I don't know the, a lot about it, but. I'd like to see the waivers on that background. <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah, I, I think there was a lot of free background going on there, but that's, you know, that's, the border between low budget filmmaking uh, and international filmmaking rules of I've shot in Mexico where the Mexican first AD looked us dead in the eye and said, just ignore the cops. You know, it's like, <laughs> you don't know what it's as an American, you don't know what to expect internationally when you're working on something. So yes, it, it's a, it's a interesting story. I liked it. Not a favorite. Yeah. Going on what you guys were saying, I think it's curious on the on the website or the press release for the for the first time feature film director. She only Maddie Diop only has a first AD listed. No it probably was. Yeah, I can I could easily see that being one of those crews that was operating at a low budget level where it was almost like a, what we would think of as a commercial, a non union commercial crew. Yeah. Like I mean, it's a lot of running and gunning. 
and I would imagine, and a lot of really long takes of nothing in particular, which is, sorry guys, I know I don't have any Oscar nominations, but it's, the, it's a giveaway that you're a first time director. You know, I'm a film student. I know how this shit works. <laughs> even that was, even if it was 25 years ago, it's, you know, it's come on. Are you telling a story or are you killing time? I agree. Actually, um, and that's, that no, no, sounds I'm... very critical. That sounds very critical. I liked the movie. I liked the story. And it's one of those things where I'm sure she's learned that lesson from audience reactions. And it'll be interesting to see what she does next. Whether she's um, able to tap into, um, uh, those feelings and some of those themes that she was exploring and, and, and deliver a more polished product next time. Let's move on to the second film on the list, Honey Boy. Uh, I have also seen this film. Uh, who has also seen it with me? Hi, Scott. Okay. The first 25 minutes at this point. Uh, so Sean and I have seen the film. Bill has seen about 25 minutes. Katie, we're uh, just making recommendations for you at this point, I know. so I'm, I'm making a list. I'm making a list. <laughs> All right, so Sean, start us off. What do you think of Honey Boy? I mean, I sort of, I knew a lot of hearsay stuff about, I mean, so if you don't know, Shia wrote the film while he was in rehab after an arrest as not even necessarily to be a film, but to be some sort of catharsis for himself. He's been diagnosed PTSD due to his relationship with his father. He had known this filmmaker, Alma Harrell, for, for several years. She directed music videos and things like that. And sort of like, you know, when he got out of the, the rehab center, said, I wrote something in there, and I don't know if it's a thing, but like read it and just see what you think, because if, if nothing else, it'll help you understand me. And she read it and said, we have to make it, and sort of, I guess, prevailed upon him to play his own father. And the story is about his life. I also got to work with Shia probably a decade ago and really just thought he was lovely. I mean, you know, there were, it was clear that there were things that he was dealing with. And from my perspective at the time, I thought, well, he's just dealing with the sort of fame being put upon him at such a level at this point. But it was almost in, in some case, I don't know about for you, Skid, but watching him playing his father, talking to this young actor, uh, Noah Jupe, who's also in Ford versus Ferrari, who's very talented. It was sometimes it was really difficult to watch. And I felt like what Alma Perel was doing was she really wanted you to feel that the way that the father would speak to the child was terribly emotional for me. And now, you know, it's just like, I don't know. I, I don't know if I was sort of connecting dots that weren't even necessarily there because I'd met him and been around him but I found it very emotional. I agree, actually. I, was, um, I didn't go into the movie with um, high hopes. Honestly, from the way it's put together, I, I was concerned that it was some sort of vanity project. It was going to be very sort of self-indulgent that basically uh, Chaya acting and, although not the director, technically directing himself in kind of the movie. But in the end, I think it's, uh, it's much more complicated. And Sean, I think you point out... Uh, sort of where those edges are and uh, to Alma's credit, I mean, to bring all that together and to hold what's obviously a very personal story. And it's personal in ways that are open, but uh, again, in uh, less capable hands could very easily have, uh, have, have tipped over and, and, and been less of a 
less of a of, of a good movie. So, but uh, but Bill, you said you've started the film but not finished it. Tell us more what you think so far. I mean, I'm definitely I'm curious. All the uh, the hype was a turn off to me for sure. Kind of what you were saying, Skid. I having worked in Hollywood during his uh, first appearance. I mean, I remember watching Project Greenlight pretty religiously. That that battle of shaker heights so you know i feel like we really have watched shia labeouf grow up you know and i feel for those people they're not <laughs> i don't think they intend uh i don't think they originally intend to entertain us on a uh at 24 7 level and i can only imagine where that puts people sometimes i've seen it happen so you know it's Anyway, uh, so yeah, I'm definitely interested in finishing it. I like where it's going visually and thematically. I'm not too distracted by him playing his father, but there was also a glare on the screen, so I couldn't really see him that well. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever it takes to get through it. All right, let's move on to our next uh, nominee. Uh, Melina Matsukas has been nominated for Queen and Slim. I've seen Queen and Slim. Sean, have you seen it? No, I haven't seen it. I know, Katie, you haven't seen it. You told us before. Bill, Queen and Slim, I know you've seen it because you mentioned it before. Why don't you start us off with this one? Yeah, I really liked it because, you know, people keep saying it's, uh, or at least I keep hearing, like Bonnie and Clyde. And I think that's a real misrepresentation of uh, the story. It's, you take that uh, format of, the white couple creating chaos across America in a road rage thing like uh, natural born killers. And then you supplant a black couple that are dealing with the way white America treats them. And they're not doing anything wrong, but they're getting treated exactly the same as Mickey and Mallory Knox. And it's, it's a great story. Like I, I, Visually, I was blown away. I uh, I love the color scheme too. I like uh, which I know is a weird thing if you're not the uh, artsy fartsy film student to think I'm, sometimes. It's a word that you brought but, up like three times today. I'll say as well. I have, but I, you know, it stands <laughs> out. It really stands out to me. And like you know, I'm fully engrossed in a film. You know, the palette of a movie is an important part. It's creating the feeling, the vibe, and. Uh, I, I think that it's a great movie. It's a great story. And Skid, what did you think? Equally, I thought I thought it was amazing. Uh, Queen Sim is actually in my top ten this year. I would not have guessed it was a first time director pulling that off. Quite frankly, because just things are just really well balanced through the whole thing. As far as the performances are amazing, the story is um, dealing with serious issues, as as um, as you suggested, Bill. But uh, but it's not how to say it, it's, it manages to be in your face without, and it doesn't need to overdo it. Like there's no, there's nothing in the filming, like the horrible things that are going on, it just allows to happen, which I think is really a, a strong credit to the director in the sense that I think a lot of directors have this sort of need to tell the audience how they're supposed to feel about something. And sometimes it can be too much for things that obviously you should feel a certain way. Then it gets sort of layered on where there's extra music or, tight shots or just things that make me feel that it's being, even if I agree or I'm concerned, it forces it down. This movie doesn't have that. I just really enjoyed it. And uh, it's probably my pick for this category. Just again, 
no idea it was a first time director. It's already head and shoulders above. Some of the other stuff. Absolutely. That was, that was my first reaction when you told me it was one of the nominees uh, for this category. Cause I had no idea. I was, she must, she must've been doing commercials or something before that, you know, it's also the title of the category is very limiting. Like, you know, if it, they want it, it conveys complete inexperience when folks may have been doing this for years and it's the first time they went over 90 minutes. Mm. Good point on that. Well, um, what I can't compare it to is the next film, the peanut butter Falcon, uh, Tyler Nielsen and Michael Schwartz. This one I haven't seen back to our conversation. They did not send out a screener, at least to the director's guild. And so I haven't sag got it. Oh, sag PGA got it too. (laughs) Oh, well, what's going on here? All right. So, uh, who's seen the movie? I've seen it. Sean, you're going to have to take us through this one. I think you're the only one. I'm the solo. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit biased um, because I, I have had several conversations with Michael Schwartz, uh, one of the directors, because they, I, I produced a film in 2010 called Girlfriend that won a Gotham Award, and our lead actor had Down syndrome. And the lead actor in this movie, at least the one that's not a known person, has Down syndrome, and that's sort of the story. It's a little bit like a... I guess it's like kind of like a Huckleberry Finn tale through a modern lens. Um, Shia is in it, Shia LaBeouf, he's fantastic in it. And um, it's, a very, it, it's, it's a very sweet movie. Um, I guess that's the best thing I can say about it. It leaves you feeling a little buoyant when you leave. It's a bit of a fantasy uh, for this character of Zach. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's, you know, in terms of like what you guys were just talking about with, uh, Melina Matsoukas and Queen and Slim. It's it's probably not on a, a level to to get a lot of attention, other than the fact that there's a Down syndrome actor in it. It's not. It does have some beautiful, really beautiful shots in in sort of the deep south, but it's not a flashy movie in any way, shape, or form. Well, I will watch for it. Uh when they put it out in a format that I can see. And I know there's so many choices now that uh, yeah. I, I will catch that as well. The last film in this category, uh, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, directed by Joe Talbot. Another one I have seen. Bill, I know you've seen it. Sean or Katie, before we get into no. it, you guys are shaking your heads. So nope. uh-huh. uh, the Bill and Skid show once again. Bill, what do you think of Last Black Man in San Francisco? Liked it. Uh, was Didn't realize until uh, three quarters of the way through the movie that it was a true story, um, which I guess might be an indication that I had drifted off to IMDb. But yeah, I, I liked it. Uh, I also felt the first time director aspect with this one though, but on a different level, it had a, a lot of great performances, a lot of, uh, I don't want, I think that San Francisco is a character in the movie for sure. So they took advantage of their surroundings. Well, I think I liked it. I, I, it was interesting characters for sure, but the the title's relevant, but it might be too long. I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like, I feel like I was turned off by the, um, by the title. I don't know. I had too many words. I'm not sure what it is. (laughs) I think I end up in a similar place on this film. I think that there's a lot in favor of it. Uh, it is curious to think of it as a, a first-time director and what um, what they're going to say. I think the film is very showy, um, but that's the stuff I think is most effective in it. I think that there's some uh, 
Like there's some shots where they're, whether they're walking or biking or skateboarding. Yeah. Going skateboarding the is a major part of the, it's, it's skateboarding is the way you connect to San Francisco, I think in that, in that movie. And yeah. And to that point, and your point of San Francisco as a character, I think he does a really, really good job of making those scenes work in ways that, uh, I just, uh, I was impressed. I just think there's a lot of show there. I think, uh, Joe Talbot is demonstrating to the degree that it's to his credit. And I don't know what the, the full team was, uh, demonstrating a lot of sort of, um, skill and being able to capture that and bring it out. Um, I think, uh, uh, in the end, for me, I, I, I didn't really enjoy the script. I didn't know it was based on a true story. Not not sure where it goes. All of the villains in the film are caricatures. I felt like that's uh, so. For me, it felt that um, it was taking sort of a easy way out. Having lived in San Francisco for a while, again, really appreciated uh, seeing the city again and what he did with that. But I wanted, I guess, to go to the next level for me. I want even my my villains or the people I don't like or the people who are causing trouble for my protagonist, there should still be a little depth there. I mean, I don't need to have their own scenes, but it's the sort of casualness of sort of uh, the downside, or if you will, the gentrification of, of, of San Francisco that I think is really important. But I think when you just make characters of the folks who are doing it, it loses well, some of its power actually. And for me, anyway, I, I'm not, I'm not denying what you're getting at, uh, but in that sense, I saw the play. There's a, there's a subplot within the story of one of the characters is writing a play. And it really, it felt as if it was a play that had been turned into the movie. Like that's what they, it was the, the main actor, Jimmy is, that's his real name. Like that's, that's, I guess that's his story is what I read. And it's, it felt like a play. So I, I judge it as once I get that vibe, Jojo was kind of that way too, where it's the campiness takes it to a point and it's so much one-on-one dialogue heavy where I start imagining it on a stage and, you know, all film ultimately, I mean, hell, the first 10 years of movies, they were literally shooting plays. So uh, not to go too historic on this conversation, (laughs) but um, yeah, sorry. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, so it, the campiness worked as the way you play to the 50th row as opposed to the camera that's right in front of you. But, and, uh, and actually, and as you were describing it, it reminded me of what you pointed out on Jojo Rabbit that I may have missed where when we're doing from a, uh, when we're experiencing the perspective of events from a specific character. Like, Whose you guys story is about, it? You guys it's talked about question, with the Nazis as well. Saying, it's yeah. an important question that I, you know, I think I saw some a, a teacher asked it of me and then showed me the documentary, but it was the DP asked Spielberg on uh, Sugarland Express, whose story is it? And Spielberg's answer, as any director, first time director will say, it's my story. I wrote this thing. <laughs> no, it, I was talking about the characters whose, <laughs> whose story is this telling us. And that's, you know, it's Jojo's story or, uh, in this case, that was actually part of the problem. I wasn't entirely sure if it was Jimmy's or Monty's story mm. of the two main characters. And Monty's writing the story, but uh, Jimmy's the main character. Like, I feel like that even could have been worked out more, make it a better uh, story. That, to your point, though, but I was just like as uh, uh, in, uh, in, in JoJo, uh, the Nazis are campy, and uh, whether it's Monty or Jimmy, um, all the white people are assholes. And uh, 
So that's kind of where the movie goes. Um, all right. Well, that's uh, that category. Uh, we want to speak, I think, what will probably be a brief conversation on the uh, documentary. Can you read it to us? Yeah. American Factory is on Netflix by Stephen Bognar and Julia Reichert. Uh, the Cave by Ferris Aid. Uh, Maiden by Alex Holmes. Honeyland by Lubomir Stefanov and Tamara Toteska and Nanfu Wang and Jialing Zhang did One Child Nation. So five films nominated once again, but I haven't seen any of them. How about you guys? I no. haven't seen any of them. I haven't seen any, but I have been inundated with the movie poster every time I log on to Amazon of One Child Nation. So that's my uh, betting. I, if I was betting, I would bet on that one for the Oscar poll because it'll probably get nominated there too. Good we'll campaigns. It's a category that's totally disrespected. I love documentary filmmaking. Michael Moore reminds us of this. He's not the only one making these movies, and yet we still don't watch them. I would, I would put my money probably on American Factor. I did get a screener for it from PGA, um, and, and the, the cover, which was just in Chinese and said American Factory on another, was quite interesting. And I, I, if I had more time, I definitely was going to watch it because I, I'm also a fan of docs. I did watch another doc on Netflix that's not nominated for anything, but it's like excellent. I'll tell you off offline. But um, yeah, I I um I need to watch these. You can tell us if there's a doc out there you saw that you thought should have been nominated. That's that's fair game for this this conversation. <laughs> well, I think it's actually it was probably released. Maybe it was released in January. I don't. know. Maybe that's why it missed. But it, it's a Netflix doc called "Don't Fuck with Cats." Great. Um, that's a great documentary. I. Yeah. I mean, I had no idea what it was going to be. I, it started doing one thing and I thought, oh, this is going to be about some nerdy people and something. something. And by the end of it, I was like, wow, that, was, that went places I definitely didn't see coming. I mean, it's just as much about how nobody would listen to them because of the type of people that do those things. Exactly. Exactly. As much as it was about the crime that they were trying to help solve. But, you know, and I think that uh, the OJ 30 for 30 made documentaries a very confusing thing because now are eight hour documentaries uh, Oscar worthy when they've been aired on ESPN? Did these things as a get miniseries? Aired? As a miniseries, not even as a feature, but as a miniseries. Like, yeah, yeah, I don't like I love I love long form. Give right. it to bring it on. But you can't qualify for both an Emmy and an Oscar in the same year. Because if you qualify for one, you should automatically be restricted from qualifying for the other. I, like, I don't know how you qualify for both. You know how you qualify for both? You make it for a company that's owned ultimately by Disney. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's exactly right. That'll help. Well, I have uh, not seen Fuck these. the mouse. No, cut that out. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Well, I don't watch a lot of documentary myself, not because I'm opposed to the format. I just like to see creatively what people do with when you can actually write the script. But that being said, um, I'll check out that, uh, that cat's one. We'll go from there. Well, that's the categories we have for today. Uh, folks, thanks for being here, everyone. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Skid. Thanks for having me back, Skid. Appreciate it. Listeners, please join us again for our next episode. We'll review the television categories. In the meantime, you can send email to Skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. I also appreciate your feedback via iTunes, where your ratings and comments really do help us reach new listeners. And Facebook, where for your visual entertainment, I post photos and other behind the scenes materials at podcast below the line. 
Finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Podmore. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Thanks for listening. Join us again soon.